Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Will you pray with me? Divine love here among us, open our hearts and minds to the goodness of Christian life for today. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, we begin a five-week sermon series titled, Why Be Christian? About this sermon series, we write, after necessarily deconstructing Christianity that's based on biblical inerrancy, divine wrath, and exclusion in Jesus' name, people often find themselves asking, why should I be Christian? This important question comes from a place that is much deeper than cynicism. It's an honest question. Why, if the Bible isn't inerrant, God is love, and Jesus' table is open to every person, should anyone identify as a Christian today in 2023? This sermon series will explore nonviolent and non-dominion reasons for being deeply yet humbly Christian today. I'm really excited about this sermon series. I think it begins to get at the heart of what many Christians, especially post-evangelicals, find themselves asking today. Why be Christian? And there are a couple reasons for which I think taking time to consider this question is worthwhile. Here's a first reason. Today's Christianity needs coherent and compelling thought on Christian life that is nonviolent and non-dominion if it is to be truly good. I'd like to say that again because it feels important. Today's Christianity needs coherent and compelling thought on Christian life that is nonviolent and non-dominion if it is to be truly good for Christian life. Here's what I mean. Many Christians today have necessarily deconstructed religious thought on biblical inerrancy, a violent God, and an exclusive table in Jesus' name. Now, taking that deconstruction a step further, many of the old answers for why a person should be Christian no longer work. For example, if the Bible, albeit sacred and inspired, is not written by the very hand of God, thereby resulting in a perfect text, then the Bible is in need of a reconstructed authority. Because most of us were taught to submit to the Bible's authority as the infallible and inerrant word of God. Here's another example. If God, the ground of our being, is infinite love, and holding all of this together and moving all of this forward, then theology proper, systematic thought on God, is in need of a reconstructed system. Because most of us were taught to submit to a God who is somehow both everlasting kindness towards some and violently wrathful toward most. And one more example. If Jesus' table is truly common and open, 
than the beloved community or the body of Christ, as Christians call it, is in need of a reconstructed table. Because most of us were taught to submit to an ideology in which a person must believe just the right things in order to belong in Christ or else. Now, before moving forward, I want to pause here, make space for any whirling thoughts or increased heartbeats (laughs) that you may be feeling in this moment. These ideas are difficult, destabilizing, and scary stuff for many of us to consider even for people who have begun to deconstruct and reconstruct their Christian faith. Here's what I've noticed about this process of deconstructing and reconstructing. It's that we humans are incapable of tearing down and rebuilding Christian ideology in one fell swoop. It's impossible. It's a process. And so here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that some people begin to deconstruct Christian faith because they can no longer imagine a divinity who is wrathful toward queer people and against their desire to share covenantal life with another person. That's a starting place for many people. And while the shift in perspective often includes a deep dive into several key texts in the Bible, a larger process of rethinking the Bible itself has yet to occur. Similarly, once a person begins the important journey of deconstructing and reconstructing this thing called the Bible, a larger process than of rethinking theology proper, systematic thoughts on God, has yet to occur. And similarly, once a person begins the important journey of deconstructing and reconstructing their thoughts on God, who is love, a larger process of rethinking salvation and its exclusive connection to Jesus has yet to occur. And so you see, it's a, it's a process. It's a necessary process that lifts us from the land of violent and dominion-centered Christianity and sets us down in a truly loving Christian landscape that provides coherent and compelling thoughts on why a person might want to be Christian today in 2023. Now, for anyone looking for a deep dive into all of this kind of deconstructing, reconstructing content, we have a class called Reconstructing Christian Faith. We're going to offer it in October. It'll be the beginning of a six-week period. You're all invited to participate in that. Uh, In February, we're going to offer that same content as a retreat out at the coast. I would encourage anyone who's in this process of trying to coherently think about deconstructing and reconstructing uh, to participate in this offering that we provide a few times each year. But just just to whet our appetite, I'd like to briefly introduce some reconstructed thoughts on the Bible, God, and Jesus. Uh, Beginning next week, we're going to get a little more pastoral. This is going to be a little more teachy, but I think it's necessary to lay the ground for this reconstructed idea about Christian life. In many cases, I want to say that these reconstructed thoughts aren't actually comprised of new ideas contemporary ideas that have just popped up in the 21st century. Many of these reconstructed thoughts are actually based on very old, very ancient ways of being Christian, before Christianity was swept up by empire. Let's start with the Bible. Many of us were taught that the Bible is perfect, and we heard words like infallible and inerrant to describe its perfection. And so, when we came across something in the Bible that contradicted science or history, or when we read something that didn't make sense, 
or we came across one of those passages that just felt terribly and horrifyingly regressive or made God into something horrifying and violent, many of us were taught to harmonize the Bible. Now, the word harmonize wasn't often used to describe our biblical interpretation, but that's what we were taught to do. If something in the Bible contradicted science or history or didn't make sense or felt regressive or made God violent, our options were to harmonize, which meant we had to come up with answers like this. Well, the science is wrong, or the history is wrong, or our feeble human minds cannot comprehend the ways of God, or our copies of the original manuscripts aren't quite right, or when all else fails... God said it, I believe it, right? This resolve to harmonize was necessary because the Bible's authority was directly connected to being the perfect word of God. But here's the thing, long before the Reformation and the eventual insistence on a perfect Bible, there was this idea of a sacred text inspired by God, but written by humans, Imperfect but inspired humans grasping at the ineffable through language. And so heroes of the Christian faith, such as 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople Nazianzus and Gregory the Great and John Wesley and Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and even the glorious C.S. Lewis understood the Bible as being written by inspired humans who imperfectly grasped at the ineffable through language, which insisted on a different interpreted lens that can be called accommodation. Now, accommodation is an ancient lens that invites readers of the Bible to wrestle with the text, I love this, in community with others, with sensitivity to the human consciousness of the original authors, in order to discern the heart, voice, and pleasure of God for today. Isn't that beautiful? Like, what a wonderful and deeply Christian way to engage this glorious, messy, problematic, and inspiring thousands of years old collection of human thoughts on the divine. That we don't have to check our mind or our reason at the door to enter into by faith, but we can bring all of ourselves, all of our faith, all of our reason, all of our knowing to try and interpret and understand in community the heart of God for today. And this brings me to God. Standing on ancient biblical interpretation, did you know that before Augustine's insistence on original sin, there were other deeply Christian ways of thinking about Adam and Eve in the garden? It's true. Rather than understanding Adam and Eve as disobediently eating fruit from a tree that cataclysmically altered the earth and depraved every human being from that point forward, there was the notion of wisdom grasping. In Christian ideology. It's beautiful. God puts two humans in a garden and invites them to grow up. And he only gave them one prohibition. And we all know the prohibition, right? Do not eat from that tree of knowledge. And of course, they eat the fruit because who wouldn't want perfect knowledge? But you see, as God tried to warn them, humans cannot instantaneously grasp perfection. We just can't. And as we see in this ancient story, the expectation of perfection is always a curse. It's always a curse that results in our own shame and guilt because there is only one way for us to grow up, which is slowly, right? 
day by day, year by year, developmental step by developmental step. And so perhaps it's humans who expect perfection, not God. When you let that sink more deeply down into your heart, that starts to change a lot about Christian religious life, doesn't it? So here we are, set down in a world, invited to grow up slowly into all wisdom and goodness. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible, right? From Genesis to Revelation, a world slowly maturing, beginning with violence and laws, but moving, always moving toward maturity, the culmination of peace and love. That's what we see in the Bible. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Jesus, the incarnation of God, who we are told in the Gospel of Luke, this is a really interesting text at the beginning of Luke, Jesus, we're told, grows up into wisdom and stature. Ultimately being moved by love, Jesus invites anyone who will listen, come and follow after me. And so you see, what if God, like a parent, isn't expecting perfection? That's what we think God wants. Rather, what if God, like a parent, has graciously set us down in this incredible world with the audacious hope and desire that we, over time, slowly grow up good, which can only happen over time? That changes everything, doesn't it? It does. From divine expectation for humans to be perfect and to think perfect and to believe the very perfect things to a divine parent who has placed us in this world to do that which life, capital L, life exists to do. Spur on our becoming full of goodness and love. And while our divine parent God is with us, all the while our divine parent God is with us and for us, patiently encouraging and daily basking in our becoming wise and loving humans. All right, now here's a real sticky one, Jesus' common table. Let's just go all the way back to the original table, a table comprised of poor, unclean, and marginalized humans, a table that Judas Iscariot himself was at, in whom the Bible tells us the devil himself had resided within. He was at that table. Jesus broke bread and poured wine and gave it even to Judas. Tragically, Jesus' common table has become an exclusive table. But Mike, Christianity is the path to God. I want to challenge that notion. It's important to realize that many of the ancient religions that exist today were marked in some of their earliest years by exclusion. But they don't have to be. Fortunately, in most of the ancient religions that exist today, there is an ever-increasing ecumenical perspective that's fostering interreligious dialogue marked by respect and curiosity rather than exclusion and dominion. As we're all seeing, it is very often exclusive religious beliefs that portend to have the truth, capital T, truth, that give way to violence in our world. Isn't that true? And that's because exclusion is inherently dominion, inherently violent. And we need to, we must, we must move away from that kind of thinking as Christians today. But Mike, what about Paul and Jesus' blood and atonement, right? Well, looking at Paul through the interpretive lens of accommodation that makes space for human consciousness, we're able to ask ourselves, what was Paul doing? Paul, the Jewish Pharisee, 
who had been converted by Jesus, was trying to work out the meaning of Jesus' death on a cross through his Jewish lens of a sacrificial system. That's the good work of a theologian. Trying to make contemporary meaning out of older ways of seeing the world. And here's what's really interesting. Although Paul and Jesus didn't catch on within, the, within Judaism, the Judaism they were a part of, Jews have moved past the ancient idea that God needs the sacrifice of blood today. They've just moved past it. That's an old, ancient idea. I think we Christians are being invited to move forward as well. But Mike, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Have you ever heard that? It's right out of the Gospel of John. I did a lot of work in John in my, gospel, in my doctoral work. There's seven miracles in John. There's seven I am statements in John. I'll give you the other six I am statements by Jesus in John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. It's interesting to me that nobody is arguing that Jesus is literally bread or literally light or literally a shepherd or literally a door or literally a vine. You see, Jesus' I am statements in John are clearly metaphors. And the, a coherent interpretation of these I am statements cannot result in reading one statement literally and all of the other ones metaphorically. Does that make sense? We have to read them all the same. So they're either all literal statements that we declare. You must believe that Jesus is a door. Jesus is a shepherd. I thought he was the son of a carpenter. No, he's a shepherd. You must, right? Nobody's talking about that. It's just this one verse that everybody picks out. Jesus said it. I believe it. And so what does it mean that Jesus is metaphorically the way, the truth, and the life? Well, it certainly isn't praying a sinner's prayer to go to a place called heaven that is nowhere in the Bible or in Jesus' teaching. Rather, as we see it throughout his life in the Gospels, Jesus' way, the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the life of Jesus are about loving God and loving others. The way, truth, and life of Jesus are about challenging powers that oppress this world. The way, truth, and life of Jesus is a common table that every person, especially the marginalized, are able to fully belong at. The way, truth, and life of Jesus is that death and resurrection, death and resurrection is the path unto transformation and growth. That's how we all grow. One idea dies and a new idea births. One way of being dies and a new way of being births. One way of being dies and a new way of being births. It's all death and resurrection. It's all winter, spring, summer, and fall. It's all night and sunrise. It's all being made manifest again and again and again through death and resurrection. That is the way, truth, and life. And Jesus invites, come, come, follow after me. And to be Christian today in 2023 is to continue to say yes, like Jesus' original audience, to following in his way of being in the world. At this point, you may be wondering, well, why? If the Bible isn't inerrant and God is love and Jesus' table is open to everyone, should anyone identify as Christian today? Well, that's exactly what the sermon series intends to explore in the coming weeks. But, but here are just a few thoughts to get us thinking. 
1984, Father Thomas Keating invited a broad range of spiritual teachers from virtually all of the world's great wisdom traditions, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu, indigenous, Islamic, to gather at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado. This came to be called the Snowmass Conference. The words used by those who gathered to explain their time together were intimate, trusting, transformative, and inspirational. Isn't that beautiful? If only diverse religious people could meet together with openness and honesty to experience intimate, trusting, transformative, and inspirational conversations, as opposed to tribal violence and dominion, we could all be so much further into the land and goodness and love the city of God, couldn't we? One key goal for the leaders' time at Snowmass Conference was uh, rather than to argue about all of their differences, they wanted to spend their time investigating points of agreement, about which they found eight. Agreement number one, the world religions bear witness to the experience of ultimate reality to which they give different names. Point two, ultimate reality cannot be limited by any name or concept. Point three, ultimate reality is the ground of infinite potentiality and actualization. Point four, faith is opening, accepting, and responding to ultimate reality. Five, the potential for human wholeness or in other frames of reference, enlightenment, salvation, transcendence, transformation, blessedness is present in every human being. Point six, Ultimate reality may be experienced not only through religious practices, but also through nature, art, human relationship, and service to others. Point seven. As long as the human condition is experienced as separate from ultimate reality, it is subject to ignorance and illusion, weakness, and suffering. And finally, eight. Discipline practice is essential to the spiritual life. Yet spiritual attainment is not the result of one's own efforts, but the result of the experience of union with ultimate reality. Aren't these points of agreement incredible? As vastly different as each religious system is, there's fundamental similarity and deep goodness at the soul level of these religious perspectives. Perhaps that's why NPR recently highlighted a professor in clinical psychology from Columbia University named Lisa Miller, who, through clinical studies, found that spirituality can be good for our mental health. Did you know that religion is derived from the Latin word religio, which is derived from the Latin word religare, re, back, and legare, to bind. To bind together. To bind back together. That is the essence of truly good religion. We humans could use some of that, couldn't we, today? In this fragmented society and our fragmented souls and our fragmented brains, you know, whizzing through things so fast all day long, we could all be bound back together, couldn't we? You see, religion is a way of seeing. It's a way of perceiving and understanding the world that holds us individually and corporately together. Some time ago, I was talking to my neighbor, and we were bemoaning the state of our world, and I asked her, what do you think the solution is? Like, if you could just do one thing, like, what would change at all? And we'd never really talked about our occupations, and so she thought about it, and then she said very clearly, the end of religion. 
I asked some questions and understood better what she meant. We need less and less exclusive ideology that fosters difference and nurtures violence in the name of God. And to that I say, amen. But as Lisa Miller found out and as the Snowmass Conference encouraged, nonviolent, non-dominion religious perspective can truly be good for human flourishing. Well, then why not just mash it all together, you know? Like, like Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Islam. Like, let's just mash it all together. That's a great idea. It's been tried. It's called Unitarianism. Unitarianism tried to mash it all together. And it kind of works. It kind of helps. But you know what the problem is in mashing it all together? It's just too much. Too many words for God, too many holidays, too many symbols, too many metaphors. It's just too much. I mean, just try to get your heart around Christianity. That's a pretty big system, right? Just try to get your heart around Buddhism. Just try to get your heart around Islam. Unitarianism has showed it's a valiant effort to try and mash it all together, but then it waters everything down because how deep can you go with all of them all together? At Pearl, we're trying to cultivate a way of being deeply pervasively and necessarily humbly Christian. Christians held together by a sacred story, the Bible, and a common table, Eucharist, that animates our lives not by fear or violence or dominion or shame or guilt, but by the love that we see reflected in the life of Jesus. I began this sermon by saying that this new sermon series is important for a couple of reasons. The first, today's Christianity needs coherent and compelling thoughts on religious life. And there's a second, much shorter reason for why I think this sermon series is important for us at Pearl, which is being. Being as opposed to anti-being. In this day and age, it is altogether easy to deconstruct everything. You know what I mean? To mock everything. You know what I mean? to live a life of intense skepticism. You know what I mean? But I don't think that deconstruction, mockery, and skepticism can lead to human flourishing. At times, because of our religious trauma here in this room, Pearl has been a place that can lean toward anti-being. All of the things we're against. But it's my sincere hope that this series marks an intentional movement toward being. Being a community that deeply engages our sacred text with intensity, dialogue, and reason. Being a community that rests into God, our parent, who patiently and hopefully nurtures our growth into ever-increasing wisdom and love. Being a community that reflects Jesus' way, truth, and life. Being a light on a hill. Being an embodiment of love. Being held together like ligaments by deeply yet humble Christian faith. I believe that could be transformational for us all. Will you pray with me? Divine love here among us, open our hearts to Christian life, loving others, challenging powers that oppress this world, a table so common that every person especially the marginalized, belong. And a deep surrender to death and resurrection, death and resurrection, always resurrection as you are making all things new.
We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.